like our content? It's funded by viewers like you. Please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of New Church Live today. Friends, it's my privilege to welcome you to today's service, a very special one. Years ago, Nora McInerney spoke from this very stage, and it was, it was one of those moments for me as a pastor and for many people where it's this reminder of this is what church can be. And the night before had set it up, and I want to talk about that for a minute. The night before, we gathered a lot of people from the New Church Live community, met at someone's house, and we had a large group there talking about loss and their immediate losses that they were wrestling with. Because loss is so much part of the universal human experience. We all struggle with it. And yet, how do we put our arms around it, our hands around it, and learn this, learn how to move on with it, not somehow to move past it? I mean, that's Nora's whole message. And it was one of those really sacred nights, one of those sacred moments. And then when she spoke from the stage, it was beautiful. So friends, I'm so glad you're joining us today. So glad you're here to enjoy with us this beautiful talk by Nora McInerney. And on behalf of our congregation, on behalf of me, Pastor Chuck Blair, welcome. Welcome to New Church Live.
Hey everyone, this is your friendly reminder to make a donation to New Church Live. And it's super easy and there's a handful of ways. There's a QR code below, which will take you to the donate page, or you can text the word New Church Live, all one word, all lowercase to 77977, and you can make a donation that way. Or you can visit our website, www.newchurchlive.tv, and there's a donate tab there. Both places you can set up a reoccurring donation or you can make a one-time donation and all of your support helps fuel everything that happens here at New Church Live. We're so appreciative. Thank you all so much for making a donation. Thanks. Hi. All right. Um, one huge thank you to Kevin. Always thank your IT people. He's a genius. He figured out how we can get what's here to there via there. And all he asked me was to be extra obvious when I'm switching slides. So I can either point or I can be like, <laughs> and it's up to um, you. Honestly, um, okay. I'm I'm Nora McNerney. Thank you for having me here. Um, it is honestly okay. I come from Minnesota. Um, it's very flat. Um, it, we don't have like a lot of. We're just like a newer part of of the nation. Like things are old here, <laughs> in like a really cool and fancy way. And also the names are neat, like Pennypack, uh, like Huntington did. Um, I drove on a Computer Avenue, which was interesting. I really needed to get uh, tacos. Anyways, it's just really, I love, I love being in a new part of the country. I'd never been here. I thought I was going to see Ichabod Crane last night. I realized, uh, I mean, just, to, just so you know, this area is for sure haunted. Um, in a, like, honestly, probably by, like, fancy ghosts, but I think you, you already know that. It's, it's just really a beautiful, beautiful place, and it makes me feel like I should live in, like, a very old, like, farmhouse and, like... Um, maybe brush my hair every day. It's been in, it's been an inspiring um, 24 hours. So it, if you can't tell, oh by the way, I just switched. Um, if you can't tell, I definitely work from home, and it has made me um, socially just wonderful. Honestly, like I don't feel bad for anybody who will meet me later and be like, "What is happening? What is she talking about? Ghosts? Pennyback?" Um, so why am I actually uh, here? I do have to write that down for myself because like I said, I work from home and um, it does make you um, strange. It does make you strange. And also why would I be at a church? I grew up Catholic. Um, no offense to anybody who's watching this who is currently Catholic, but church is not like this. And I think that if it were, maybe we would have a better turnout <laughs> because it's... <laughs> Um, yeah, like, no, it's just also, I was always, I, I, I dreaded going to church as a child, um, because it was so boring, um, is the word I was looking for. And then also I was, I was confused. Like I didn't really understand anything that was being said. And also the tone of voice never changed. So it's just like, and I was like, when do I stand up? Like, I'll just follow the crowd. You stand up, you sit down. I was like, honestly a little triggered when Chuck was like, stand up. I was like, oh God, did I, <laughs> did I miss it? <laughs> did I miss it? Um, I wasn't like the best Catholic. We did, we did really strange things at, at my church. Um, like we did confession, but we did it in second grade. I don't know if that's normal, but I was like, I, I don't have anything. Like... <laughs> I'm eight, so I feel 
pretty good about myself still. And the priest was like, we'll fix that. Uh, <laughs> he was like, nothing? You don't have anything to like repent for? And I was like, not really. <laughs> like, I just, I feel pretty good about most of my behavior and my brother deserved it. I don't know what, I don't know what he was in here telling you before, but uh, I feel like that was a pretty even exchange. And yeah, you, when you throw the first punch, you also get to throw the last. That's how it works. Um, anyways, that is not why I'm here. Um, I, <laughs> I don't get invited to speak at a lot of churches, and I am definitely holding in all of my swears because my child does go to a Lutheran preschool, and we have gotten some phone calls about his vocabulary. Um, and I ask the important questions, like, did he use it in the correct context, uh, like, the correct tense? Okay, well, then we can, we can speak to him about that. But I am, uh, I'm, I'm the author of a few books, and if you look at the titles, you're probably like, is this woman okay? Should she be out in public? Um, I'm the host of this podcast from American Public Media. Oh, thank you. Uh, and again, you'll start to see a theme in the way I, in the way I title things and in my work. I, um, I am uh, the, the creator, the speaker of the number four TED Talk of 2019. Um, which, was, uh, which was surprising to me and also um, not really. Not really. I'm like, what is more common uh, than suffering? And also, what is hard to talk about out loud, but easy to forward to someone via email, which, from casual conversation, I know is how most of you have seen my TED Talk. Not because you were searching, like, how can I find a TED Talk about grief, but because somebody sent it to you and was like, I'm not sure how to mention this to you, but if you press click, then we never have to speak about it. Um, I am the founder of Still Kickin'. I saw a couple shirts out there today. We are an organization that provides uh, financial relief to people who are going through difficult things. And we do that through merchandise sales of my husband's favorite t-shirt, which I recreated because it was vintage and he didn't want me to wear it because I do have a sweating problem. Um, and love and marriage is about being able to tell somebody, you are so disgusting, you can never borrow my clothes. I love you. So uh, we, we uh, founded Still Kickin' six months after Aaron died, and uh, it is not about him, it's not about me, it's about what those two words mean to the people who see them and the people who are out there experiencing a life that is hard and that also continues. And in five years, we have given uh, away over $200,000 to, to people who, who need it. So these are all things you can Google, by the way. Um, you could, and maybe you already did. Maybe you're Googling it right now, being like, why did I come to church today? Um, you will also find out that I am, uh, I am married. I have a, a, a second husband. I like to call him a current husband. He uh, claims to be 5'11", but I mean, or he claims, to, you know, it's, he's just not. He's 5'10", um, and I need to get that out there. I am a truther when it comes to my husband's height. Uh, he is... He is 5'10", and his license is a lie. We have a blended family. Um, we have an 18-year-old, a 13-year-old, 
a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. I have a front seat to all of um, adolescence and life unfolding. It is exhausting. But those are just things, um, basically, that's a, that, those aren't why I'm here. I am here not because of the things that I have necessarily done, the things that you could find on a resume or on LinkedIn if I hadn't deleted that because it was too stressful to be invited to LinkedIn with an ex-boyfriend. Like, what am I going to endorse you for? Disappointment? Uh, like, like, come on, buddy. We both know how that ended. Um, <laughs> poorly. <laughs> it's so weird that none of my ex-boyfriends speak to me. I have no idea why. Um, but I'm, I'm here truly because of my, my grief resume. And it all starts in 2014 um, with October 3rd, which is the day that I had a DNC because my second pregnancy um, was, was done. It, it was no longer happening. I was losing my, uh, my, my second and child and my last chance to have a child with my husband, Aaron, who had stage four brain cancer and was three years into treatment. So that was terrible. And then five days later, it was October 8th, and my father, Steve, um, I, I like to call him Steve. It just felt more formal. And, um, and uh, also, he hated it. So Steve died. <laughs> Of, of cancer, just a, I'm sure they gave us more specifics at some point, but it was just kind of everywhere by the time they found it. And he was sick for six months and, um, and he died on October 8th. And then six weeks after that, Aaron was dead. His, his three year, um, let's not call it a journey, let's not call it a battle, his, his three year race against the clock was over. Um, and um, with that, I can tell you that I am known to be a, I just changed slide, did it go? Yeah. I'm known to be a fun person who brings up the energy in every room uh, that she goes into. And if you are sitting there thinking, like, I really thought this was going to be uplifting and inspirational, it might be at some point today. I cannot promise you that. I do not have a train of thought so much as I have, like, an unmanned jet ski zipping around a, a small body of water. It's just, hold on. Um, it will run out of gas or we will hit shore eventually. Just be patient with me. But I hesitate to, uh, to, to use the word inspiration, really. I think inspiration is, is, is easy and also sometimes a little bit empty because I'm not here to hold myself and my experience up as the example for how you get through grief. I am not here to try to offer you a silver lining or to gather up all of your lemons and squeeze it into some organic grass-fed lemonade. I'm not. I'm not. What I'm here to do is to try to present to you in, in what I hope will be a succinct way, at least I have a timer on here, um, the things that I needed to hear five years ago, or even six years ago, the things that I, I, I didn't know because I had not experienced grief in any real and indelible way. I don't know if all of you live in America, um, but we are terrible at grief here. We're the worst. We are the absolute worst. Yeah, one, one, one woman's like, yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> Everyone else is like, we'll see. Um, we'll withhold that applause. It's, it's very bad here. Even if you are a person who is, is willing to go there with somebody, we honestly, like grief is a privilege. 
to be able to grieve is a privilege. And it is a privilege that I got and that I know a lot of people don't. I know from the Hot Young Widows Club, I know from traveling around this country and talking to so many people that a lot of us are limited to whatever bereavement leave we are given by our employer. If we have a full-time job, maybe we'll get two to three days, you know, to like wrap up the funeral, get the sad out and get back to making PowerPoints. Maybe. And if you don't have that, you'll be like my friend Mo, who a week after her husband died was um, back, back at the salon cutting hair. Because if you don't work, you don't get paid. So that's a huge systemic problem that we're not going to solve at this church or really any other. But I do believe that we can make this path easier for ourselves and for one another. And I don't have a I sometimes struggle because I don't have like a real quippy talk to give you. I can't be like, here are the top five like tips and tricks about grief that'll make it end, make it easy, and make it better. I don't have that. However, I did try. <laughs> I did try. I came up with seven things because it's more than five. More than five, less than 10. So I feel like you're really going to get your money's worth. <laughs> so we're going to start um, with number eight. Just kidding. We're going to start with number one. And I'm switching it. Kevin, you see me? Boom. So um, grief is not like a stopwatch that starts at the time of death. It, it isn't. And these are also um, things that I was not aware of. I was grieving the moment that we heard that Aaron had stage four glioblastoma, which is a fancy word for brain cancer. But I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that what I was experiencing then and for the next three years of driving him to uh, brain surgeries and blood draws and chemotherapy and radiation, that what I was feeling was not just stress and was not just uh, depression and anxiety, but was also grief. We can grieve people and relationships and experiences that honestly have nothing to do with death. We grieve the loss of a life that we thought we would have, we grieve our health, our independence. Um, we grieve relationships that have ended too soon. We grieve a lot of things, but it is hard to give ourselves that kind of grace, to identify that in ourselves. And expanding our understanding and definition of grief can offer you so much relief personally and can also help you offer other people around you grace because maybe nobody did die. Maybe nobody died. And that doesn't mean that you are not talking to a person who is still experiencing grief. Switching it now, Kev. Which ties into this one. We have a very natural inclination as, as people just as, as people, not even just grievers, but just as people, we want to compare our experiences to somebody else. And I cannot see any of you, but I imagine that if I asked for audience participation, one, I wouldn't expect to get any because when I'm in an audience, I'm like, no, you know, that's your job. I'm here to observe. <laughs> but if I asked how many of you have experienced um, sharing your story with somebody else and having them jump in immediately with what happened to them, I would get a 100% uh, participation rate. Everybody would raise their hand. That is a natural thing that we do. We love to look at somebody else's paper. We love to look at somebody else's life and compare them to one another. We say out in the world, and on, by the world I do mean Pinterest, that comparison, <laughs> 
Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of everything, of everything. It is the opposite of grace. There is no suffering Olympics. You cannot say the word Olympics. It is a trademarked word. There's no suffering international competition. Um, there isn't. There is no yardstick where we can measure our loss against somebody else's. We are experts only in our own experience. Last night we had a dinner, and I met um, I met so many wonderful people, and I like I I got emotional. They got emotional. It was great. Um, and I I I was sitting next to this woman. And I'm not going to name her, but I could. And and she said I I I'm so surprised at how this loss specifically is affecting me. It was only. It was just. She was doing the work of comparing her loss against mine, which is a completely different equation. They are not the same. We are only experts in what we have lost. And guess what? If there was, like, a, if, if out there in this audience there is somebody who is somehow like an emotional mathematical genius and can come up with the right equation of what loss matters most, if that were a competition you could win, who would want to win? Who would want to win? And would that actually make you feel better in any way to know that your loss was bigger or that your pain was smaller? No, they're not, they're not comparable. They are purely just different. Switching, Kev. Boom. Comparison, I think, happens when we are trying to fill that blank space between something painful that somebody just told us and, and how we can relate, how we can step in. I have, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, guys, I have a podcast. It's very rare and unusual for a person to be able to do that, but, um, but I do. And, and I, um, I started this podcast because I needed a job. <laughs> I needed a job. Um, my husband had died, and then I had um, not quit my job, but also not gone to it anymore. And, um, and eventually they called, like with HR on the phone, and we know what that means. Um, I was like, how did you get a hold of me? Huh? Um, and they were like, are you coming back? And I was like, oh, geez, that's a tough one. Uh, let's go with no, but what if you still paid me? And they were like, we won't do that. And that's how you lose a negotiation, okay? You can't go in with the ideal. You gotta, I've learned a lot since then. So I did, need, um, I did need a job and I needed something to do with all of these stories that I'd started receiving from other people. So I brought them to American Public Media and I said, I wanna make a podcast about the worst things in life. And they were like, that's a terrible idea. Um, however, you can try it, and I did. And in our podcast, I've realized that everybody, and everybody in this room, has a way of telling their story, right? You have a, if I asked you, like, oh, like, why are you here? What brought you here? You'd be like, well, you know, and, uh, you know, five years ago, um, you know, my, my, my mom died, and then, you know, my dad died, and then two weeks ago, I, I lost my best friend. And you would have a way of listing it off that is almost the same way that you would read your grocery list to somebody. And I obviously have that too. You saw me just do it, right? I was like, October 3rd, October 8th, November 25th. Wow, what a year. Everybody has that. Everybody does. And what we need to be able to get to the truth of what we're feeling is space, is silence.
that was five seconds of silence, by the way. Did anyone else feel like it was nine minutes long? <laughs> Did anyone else just get that, like, oh, I should say something? That's really, really natural. But I found through making my show that if I let a silence sit there, people will get to what they actually need to say. They'll get not just to the facts of what they're feeling, but the truth of it. And the truth is, like, we don't always know what to say, and we don't always know how to listen. We don't. So what I mean is, um, don't, don't reply. If you're worried that you might be a person who's going to compare your experience, or if you're feeling compared, sit there, let that silence sit, and let somebody else fill it. It is very, very hard to learn how to listen, and that is one of the strongest ways that we can show true empathy for people. And I'll get into that later. Kevin, here I go. We can't, um, we can't fix this problem for each other. We can't. And as people, um, I, I consider myself kind of a fixer. If I know that something is wrong, I try to jump to a solution for it. Um, but that rush to fixing is not an empathetic response. It's not. Empathy understands, like we use that word all the time, like can you be empathetic? Can you be empathetic to somebody? And empathy requires sitting in the discomfort with somebody else. Empathy knows that some things are hard and that's okay. It is not our job to try to solve it for somebody. It is our job to understand that what they are living with is a chronic condition. It has been five years since I lost Aaron, five years since I lost my father, and last night at dinner, I looked at this man across the table and I, I saw my dad. He looked so much like my dad, and he talked to me like my dad. I was like, will you yell at me? Is that, is that a weird thing to ask? Will you tell me to sit up straight? I felt, I felt my dad's presence, and I also felt this ache for him, and it is different than it was five years ago, but it's still here. It's still here. I said in my TED Talk that we don't, um, we don't expect people to get over the good things in life. We understand that those are things that we get to carry along with us. And I think of grief as that too. Like this is an experience and a feeling and a memory and a truth that will be with us forever. And we just have to help each other through. So, oh, geez Louise. With that, Kevin, I'm about to switch it. You ready? That is a hard thing to accept, right? It is hard to accept that these experiences are going to be with us um, for the rest of our lives. And personally, I didn't want that. Um, I had this idea of grief that if I could make it to the one-year mark, and I know I met a woman in the hotel lobby today who is approaching the one-year mark, and also Amanda just had the one-year mark, I had this idea that if I could make it to one year, if I stayed busy enough, if I accomplished enough things, then I would hit that, that mark, um, the grief would be over, and I'd have dodged it like a genius. 
Um, and I had found like that perfect formula and I can't believe that nobody else knew this and I couldn't wait to tell everybody like if you just avoid it for a year, it'll be over. It'll be like, you know, a coupon code that expired and like it can't get you anymore. I wish. And what I was doing that entire year was lying so well, like truly give me an Oscar, give me a, give me a Tony, give me whatever, whatever awards you give to people who are actors and acting is really just fancy lying. Um, I was doing my best impression of a normal person for uh, my own sake because I didn't want to be different and I didn't want that pain and I was doing it for the sake of everybody around me. Um, there is one question that we ask and answer, at least here in the US, more than any other, and it is, how are you? How many times have you said that today, today, to somebody? Like, I, that, that, you can't answer that, because it's, it's countless. And even if today is the worst day of your life, Kevin, I'm switching, you said this, probably because it is a part of our social contract where, um, you know, I, I ask you how you are and I don't really um, you know, care to hear the right answer, I've already moved on, and you lie and tell me you're fine. And we don't do this out of cruelty and we don't do this because we don't care. But when you're grieving, you say you're fine or I said I'm fine and now I'm projecting that onto all of you, so now it's a fact. We say we're fine because we want to avoid the feeling that is worse than grief. And that is this. You did it, Kevin. Kevin is, honestly, look at him. It's like he knows when I'm switching. He just knows. <laughs> I, no, faked you out, did not. So. I didn't. Um, okay, I don't know about you. I'm so good at pitying people, truly. I'm so good. I can feel bad for anyone. Like anyone, I can like walk down the street and be like, oh, 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 hmm, oh. Like, you know, you pull off the freeway, you see someone, you're like, oh, oh. You read something, you're like, oh, that's so, hmm, oh, oh. If you've been on the receiving end of pity, it feels so gross. But when you're giving it out, you feel generous. Just like throwing out this free, cheap emotion. I am from the Midwest. I'm legally obligated to tell you how much my outfit cost. These are current J. Crew, but they were 40% off. So uh, this is vintage J. Crew. I think my cost per wear is now like 10 cents. Um, I, we love a deal. We love a deal in the Midwest. I could, if, you, if you are anywhere in Minnesota, I can point you to the nearest TJ Maxx. Like we are going to we are going to live our max life together. But if there is ever a time to dig deep and be generous, it is when people around you are suffering. So in my house, there is only one F word, and that is not kosher with daycare. <laughs> but <laughs> the only F word in my house is fine. Okay, if I ask you how you are, if I ask how your day was, the only thing that you can't say to me is fine and I am not telling you that you need to go out in the world and just like cut yourself and bleed out your pain to everybody I will tell you right now that the checkout boy at Target does not get paid enough for that and you will have to find a new Target if you cry to him he's 16 he's just 
asking how your day was because it's a script they give you, okay? He doesn't need to know about why you're buying new throw pillows. He doesn't need, he is probably going to therapy for that interaction right now and I gotta drive 20 minutes out of the way. There are people out there who really only need need to hear that you're fine, but when we give the people who care about us, who really want to be there for us, the same answer that we give a complete stranger, we're preventing them from knowing us and from showing up. So every time I said fine, I was building a wall of isolation between myself and my pain and the people who wanted so badly to help me. We're never going to stop, how are you? Fine, from happening as small talk in the world, that is fine. What I am saying is eliminate that level of small talk from the people that you truly care about. Turn to the people around you after this and say, a pinky swear, this is like a legally binding agreement, um, as long as you kiss your thumb afterwards, that's how we do it where I'm from. And you say, I'm not gonna ask unless I wanna know. And you say, I'm not gonna answer with anything but the truth. And, and we're gonna switch now, Kev. In, in, in no way has he asked me to call him Kev. Um, we have, <laughs> we've, uh, we've, we've spoken twice, uh, but I feel comfortable doing that. And so I apologize if you're like, actually my parents named me Kevin um, for a reason. Also, if his name is not Kevin, and this whole time I'm calling him the wrong name, <laughs> sink through the floor in shame. Uh, just open up a trap door, I'll fall through. Um, so, we were talking about uh, trapdoors, and then we were also talking about pity. Um, I wanted to avoid pity the moment I first felt it. And the moment I first felt it was when Aaron got sick. Aaron was 31 when we found out he had brain cancer. He was the funniest. Everyone says their, their dead person is the funniest. Mine truly was. Um, the funniest, most alive person I'd ever met. Everywhere we went in Minneapolis, he knew someone. It was, it was like we lived in a small town and not like, you know, maybe the 12th largest city in America. He was just so alive. And the minute that he got sick, I could feel that pity chipping away at who he was and turning him from a fully formed person into a sad story, a story that other people could tell. Like, Did you hear? Yeah, no, it's really sad. It's, yeah, it's really sad. Nobody wants to be a sad story. Nobody wants your pity at all. So it was important to me that Aaron never just be the way that he died or the thing that killed him because Aaron was not a sad story. His story is sad. It will never not be sad that he died at age 35. But you are not a sad story, no matter how many sad elements your story includes, your dead person is not a sad story. Even if it makes people sad to hear about, we are all so much more, Kevin. This is Aaron's obituary. Um, we wrote it before he died, which is, um, I have to say, unusual. Usually you wait until a person has died before you do that. But I'm going to highlight a couple, um, a couple pieces here. Um, I'm not great at screen captures because the next line is the most important and I cut it off. Um, it is where we reveal his identity as Spider-Man, um, where we thank him for his years of crime fighting and you know, point out that everybody in Minneapolis was a real doofus for not knowing that this mild-mannered art director was really just, uh, just 
pew, pew, pew. I don't know what Spider-Man does. He was, the, he was the comic book person, and I was like, yeah. I love it. Mm. Um, and uh, so we identified his cause of death, and then we... Um, <laughs> You know, it, um, one, one more slide. One, get, let's get on the jet ski one more time. Aaron's funeral was in Minneapolis. I grew up there. You know, Amanda's like, I'm born and raised in Brynith. And I was like, born and raised in Minneapolis, which means it's kind of like the rooms that I go into there are kind of like this, where you're like, oh, that's like my cousin's mom's, you know, sister's hairdresser. Like, we're best friends. Um, so Aaron's funeral was huge. It was packed. There were people who had known me and Aaron, you know, separately since childhood. And one of the people there was, one of my oldest friend's grandmothers, and she said, Nora, it was so classy of you to put his first wife in the obituary. <laughs> and I was quite drunk uh, that night, uh, and I was like, you know what, Joyce? It was classy. <laughs> it was classy. Um, So Aaron and I wrote his obituary together because a few weeks earlier, I had written my father's obituary uh, with my three siblings. Like, one, writing anything by committee is just not fun. Um, my brother was like, I think my name should go first. I was like, yeah, I bet you do. Um, and, and you know, you're like, what's, so, what's most important to a person about summarizing their life? How do I do this? And you know who could have done this in 10 minutes? Our dad. Our dad could have done that, not just because he wrote infomercials for a living and because he's personally responsible for every like ab product you ever bought that's like sitting in your basement and that did not give you ripped abs, which is your fault and not my dad's. Uh, <laughs> he would send them to me in college and I'd be like, six seconds, we'll see. Like, <laughs> while I'm like drinking a beer, I was like, I don't think it's working. Uh, <laughs> he'd be like, well, it should. I'm like, he really believed in, in the things he wrote, which was very sweet. Um, but Aaron and I wrote it together. We wrote that obituary together because I didn't want to be the person responsible for deciding what his life meant and what his story was, and because he was much, much funnier than I was. <laughs> I, um, I was an English major. Um, and I tried to include this poem in uh, this talk just so everybody would know that I am deep, um, that I've read a poem. I've actually only read this middle part of this poem. Uh, but I do. I think about this poem uh, all the time. And I think about this when I think about Aaron's life, when I think about my life after Aaron. I've said a million times, and I will say it till the day that I die, we don't move on from the people that we love. We move forward. And their love and their death and all of the experiences that we have had with them, they form us into the people that we are today and the people that we will be as we move forward. I am a very different person than I was the day that I met Aaron, the day Aaron was diagnosed, the day that Aaron died, the day of Aaron's funeral. I'm a different person today than I was months ago. And that is why I love this poem so much because it is very easy when you're talking about the hard things in life to say, well, like, eh, you know, like, it'll be over soon, right? Or like, well, life is hard, or, but, but life is beautiful, so don't ignore that part. And that's beside the point. The point is that life is hard 
but it is not just hard. And the point is that life is beautiful, but it's not always beautiful. The point is that we can let it all happen, the beauty and the terror, and that we can keep going because no feeling is final. And I do not mean that your grief will end, I mean that it will change. I mean that the way that I feel today is different than I felt yesterday and different than I felt five years ago and different than I felt seven years ago. It's different and it's not over. So as we keep going and as this grief keeps changing, our lives change with it. Our lives change, the people around us change. There is a reason that grief feels lonely, and that's because it is. Because sometimes people are so worried about saying or doing the wrong thing that they just sort of back away from you. They just sort of feel like, oh God, you know, I don't know, um, I don't know what to do, and so I won't do, I, I won't do anything. Because I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to remind them. How many of you have ever forgotten that um, the person that you love died? <laughs> I have actually done it like okay a couple times, <laughs> only because I see Aaron like not in like you know the, yeah we're in a ghost town, but. Um, I see him, like, there are so many people who look like him or look like he did when he was 31 or 35, and as I get older, I think that's going to be more alarming for these men. Um, <laughs> when I'm like, oh, like, oh, you look like my husband, um, but he's dead. And they're like, wow, love to hear that. <laughs> like, wow, okay, ma'am, thank you. Please stop touching me. Uh, this is... <laughs> uh, so if you're lonely, it's not your fault. You didn't make it up, Okay. When I said that not everybody deserves um, the truth about how you feel, I also should have said that not everybody can handle it. Not every relationship is going to last through this kind of loss. And that is very, very hard. And the people who do show up are the right people. The people who show up are the right people. And for a long time, I kept score of every single person who had failed me uh, in excruciating detail. I mean, I, it was like, it was part of a therapy exercise, but I, you know, I wrote down like, you know, the person, first and last name, like what they had done or not done. Um, just lots of detail. Then I left that notebook in a seat back on an airplane. So some Delta employee is like, whoa. Oh, oh. and that focus that I had on people's absences, prevented me from seeing all of the ways that people were showing up and they were not the people that I expected. So every time a person doesn't show up, they are leaving a space for a person who should be there and a person who wants to be there. And every time, by the way, there's a loss around you, it can feel like it's the first time it's happened. It can feel like, well, now I don't know what to do. I mean, I know what I did, or I know what people did for me when my husband died, but what do I do now? And I have to tell you, if you were ever a grief-adjacent person, and some of you in this room are, you are not the gr you're not the center of it, but you're sort of, you know, like you care. You care looking in. Like, the secret is that you just show up. 
You just show up. You do the thing that you can do, and you do it consistently, and you do it without expectation. You do it without asking for, you know, did you get that dish that I dropped off? Okay, because I left my name on the dish. I would just like it back. <laughs> I'm just checking. I'm just checking. And did you eat it? Okay. You just do it without expecting anything back, without a thank you. And you do it as often as you can, and as thoroughly as you can, and you don't overthink it. When I say that we, did it change? Yeah, God, is Kevin good? <laughs> is Kevin good? Let's get a round of applause for Kevin. Um, we are allowed to be changed by our experiences. Okay, we are allowed to carry all of these things with us and sometimes it can feel like maybe grief changed you but not for the better, you know? Like uh, maybe, maybe you aren't a person who has come out of this like stronger and like having, you know, written a book about it and using your experience, no, 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 none of that is required, by the way. Like you are not required to take these lemons and turn them into anything. You don't like, most people really don't like lemons. I mean, it's a good cleaning agent. Like, I guess, you know, I guess maybe I'll take a slice in my water if I have to, but really it's just to like usually cover up like the taste of like a weird water, right? It's like lemons are, lemons are fine. Lemons are nobody, nobody's like, mm, you know what I want? A lemon. You know, actually, if you could just slice me up a lemon. Yeah, my favorite snack. I love it. I love it. Nobody's like that. You don't have to do that. The fact is that grief does change us, and sometimes uh, it hurts us so badly that we just hurt other people. I'm not saying that it is okay to warm yourself around the fire of your loss and make this, you know, into your own, you know, personal precious, so that you become like Gollum and like this is the most important thing um, in your life. But what I am saying is that. Um, you will be different. And some days you will think that you are a worse version of yourself. And sometimes you actually will be. Like some days you will be. Some days you will be the absolute worst. And that's not final. That's not final. But if you feel like you are a different person now, um, you are. Uh, and that's okay. I think that part of, uh, oh, I switched, Kev. You got it? <sighs> wow. It's like, why would I even doubt him? I think part of that, uh, that need to sort of feel like you are, you're back to being the same person, right, um, comes from this. And I think that I might be the only person who has a complicated relationship with the word resilient. I don't know if I am, but whenever I heard this phrase after Erin uh, died and people would say it about my child, like, oh, kids are resilient. Like, they, you know, they, they bounce back. Oh, you're so resilient. You're doing so well. All I could think of is, why are you acting like th this hasn't happened? Why are you acting like I am the same? Why, just because I'm wearing lipstick and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm wearing my J. Crew pants that I bought on 40% off using code whatever, um, why are you acting like this isn't real? Just because I will be okay doesn't mean that I am okay. And when I looked up a dictionary.com, guys, I mean, what, what would a real writer do? Like, they'd go to dictionary.com, they'd look up the word resilient the minute somebody said it to them and be like, what? To return? to your original shape and quickly, I was livid at that word and I rejected it 
over and over. Like, do not call me resilient. Do not call my child resilient. Do not tell me that I should be resilient. I am resilient. Do not use the same word on me that you would use on a goldfish or a pair of tires. Don't do it. And what I realized is, um, one, maybe I'm taking the definition too literally. And two, maybe what I need to express to the people around me is that I'm not trying to be who I was. I, I'm not trying to get back to my original shape, and I'm not trying to do it quickly. What I'm trying to do is to live comfortably in this new shape. And what I need is for the people around me to make room for this new version of myself, which sometimes looks very much the same, but, but isn't. I need, I need different things now from the people who love me, and I am different, and I want that acknowledged. And maybe that is resilience. So, I would like all of us to, I'm sorry, I was gonna make another Catholic joke and I apologize. <laughs> like, um, please stand up, shake hands with your neighbor. Um, don't actually do that. I am um, sort of like going over, over my time a little bit. Um, I am a little emotional being here today because I know how many people um, came here today from far away. Uh, to sit here and to listen to what I have to say. And I want to thank you all for being here. And I also want to say again and louder in the back for whoever needs to hear it, that it is okay if you are in pain. It is okay if you don't feel like everything is going to be fine. It's okay if you feel like everything is different right now, like you don't fit. It is okay. And what I would like to ask all of you is to think about the ways that you are possibly slipping into pity rather than empathy. I want you to move through the world as we leave this building thinking about how you express that to other people. Are you feeling bad for them and keeping your distance, which is what pity does? Or are you feeling with them, making space for that experience and for that feeling? Are you trying to rush people through something? Are you trying to find the silver lining or the bright side for them? Are you willing to sit down and say, this sucks? This is the worst, and I'm so sorry. That is my strong conclusion, that I said this sucks in church. <laughs> um, it really is so special. By the way, like I'm getting like a vaudeville hook off of here. It is so amazing and special to get to be here today. Truly, what you have here is so incredible. I have felt it with every single person that I met. Mike, where are you? I met him, wonderful dude. Um, and I know in this room that there is a lot of pain and a lot of loss and also 
the fact that everybody showed up today is in itself like part of the work is like showing up and saying like I I'm I'm willing to try I'm willing to try and sit in this awful uncomfortable space with somebody else because someday it will be me someday this thing that only happens to other people is going to come knocking at my door and I will be the other people I already concluded then I started another talk <laughs> that's kind of uh, that's kind of how it works um, I think at this point I'm supposed to leave sit down let church happen um, but I'm just really used to an altar that tells me who's in charge and who's going to hell so, <laughs> so and you're in charge and I'm going to hell okay <laughs> Boy, Nora, that was terrific. Just thank you. Thank you again. And, and I think, you know, what a gift for all of us. And I, I just want to close with this. They're going to do a, do a song. And uh, then I'm going to come back for just a few little closing remarks. And just, just listen to the lyrics of this. Listen to the lyrics of Rise Up and how we can rise up in our lives and, and what that can be. So, again, we're going to have a song. Then I'm going to come back for just a few closing words. Then a last song. And then we'll have a break.